Hello, everyone. This is Jeffrey Kerr. From April 25th through June 18th, the Children's Theatre Company in Minneapolis, Minnesota will be presenting the world premiere of a stage adaptation of the 1986 Academy Award-nominated animated film, An American Tale. This is a commissioned production in association with the Universal Theatrical Group. Today, I'm here with the book writer and co-lyricist behind this particular project. He's written episodes of a few different TV shows, such as Men of a Certain Age, Boardwalk Empire, Outsiders, and The Affair, not to mention that he also happens to be the Tony-winning book writer behind The Band's Visit. Please welcome Itamar Moses. Hi. So it starts things off. How are things going with An American Tale? Pretty well. You know, we just began rehearsals a couple of weeks ago, maybe March 20th or so. It's really great. We had uh, great support from Children's Theatre Company doing readings and workshops over the course of the last couple of years, which gave us an opportunity to somewhat see what we had and refine it a bit. So we started rehearsal in a pretty good place, and the cast is lovely and very game. All the designers and everyone involved are super talented, so, so far so good. And how did the opportunity for you to work on this adaptation come about? I think... What happened initially was that CTC acquired the rights from Universal, who you mentioned, who, who own the film along with Amblin. They approached them, got the rights to do a stage adaptation, and then contacted me about whether I would want to be the book writer. So my first uh, association with the project was just getting an email out of the blue from Children's Theatre Company saying, hey, is this something you'd, you'd want to talk about? And immediately, of course, just because I know the film, I have such fond memories of it, I was like, sure, yeah, let's let's talk about it. And fast forward a few years and here we are. Yeah, and my next question was how familiar were you with the original animated film beforehand and you've already just alluded to Yes. Yeah, somewhat. I mean, I I'm I'm the right age where I was 9 years old when the movie came out. So I was definitely the target audience. So, you know, I saw it, all my friends saw it. We watched it on a VHS tape in school, I think. It wasn't, you know, like kids sometimes are with movies where they like own it and watch it over and over again. It wasn't one of those for me necessarily, but it was definitely something that I saw a few times. And then, you know, it had all these sequels and Fievel, the mouse who's the central character became, you know, this iconic figure in the history of animation. So, and of course, like a couple of the songs are, are quite well known. So yeah, I was familiar, although I hadn't watched it in many, many years before I took this job and then started watching it. That's when I watched it over and over again, was when I was starting to work on the adaptation. What can longtime fans of the cartoon expect from this stage adaptation? I would say a nice mix of exactly the things you remember from the movie and some new things that expand the story a little bit and go deeper into certain things. And also songs, new songs. The movie only has three or four songs. And there's really only two really that people really remember this famous Somewhere Out There by Linda Wartronstadt and a song called There's No Cats in America people tend to remember and there's and there's a couple others but that's it so four songs doesn't really a full stage musical make so just to turn it into a more complete piece of musical theater me along with Alan Schmuckler and Michael Mahler who are great composers and then three of us all did lyrics together we probably wrote eight or nine new songs for the show so that is a new thing people can expect along with preserving some of the older ones and then 
yeah, all, all, pretty much all of the characters from the movie and then a couple of new ones. What has it been like for you getting to, you know, write all these new songs, especially, you know, making sure they at least, you know, have the same feel as the pre-existing songs that Barry Mann, Cynthia Wilde, and James Horner wrote for the original? First of all, it's been really fun to get to write new songs for characters that I've sort of known about almost my whole life. It feels sort of like an honor. And in terms of the style and keeping things stylistically consistent, that fell more on Mike and Alan's shoulders as the composers. But to speak hopefully accurately for them, I think they did a really great job of using a variety of musical styles that sort of echo and draw on the musical styles that reflect different immigrant groups and so on that were in New York at the time. You know, there's sort of a Tin Pan Alley or vaudeville feel to the movie because of the era it is. It's set in the 1880s. And that gives you a whole sort of, you know, list of different song styles to draw from. So that was, I think, the starting point for that. And going back to the beginning, how did you first get started in the theater? I am originally from Berkeley, California in the Bay Area. And there's a lot of really great theaters there. Berkeley Rep and ACT in San Francisco are the big ones, but there's a ton of others. Marin Theater Company, The Magic Theater, San Francisco Playhouse. I mean, they're all over. And so I was interested in writing from a very young age. I was a big reader as a kid. And I think kids who read a lot sometimes get interested in writing. And I thought I wanted to write fantasy novels or science fiction novels, which is mainly what I was reading at the time. And then in high school, I started to get more interested in theater. I started seeing plays my friends were putting on and seeing some of the stuff at those theaters I mentioned around the Bay Area. Angels in America was really big at the time. This was the mid 90s. So I remember reading that and then seeing a regional production at ACT. And so all of these sort of factors came together that made me think around when I was a senior in high school, oh, I should try to write a play. So that was when I wrote my first one. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. Over the course of college, theater became my main extracurricular activity, not just writing plays, but just like doing theater the way you do as a college student. You're in them and you work on the crew and you write stuff. So I did that a lot in college. And by the time I graduated and moved to New York, the snowball, I guess, had gotten big enough that I just, just kept going down the hill. Well, yeah, and you've also managed to transition into writing for television. And, you know, yeah. that's a medium where writers are most in control of how the story is told. And what are some of your favorite experiences of working there so far? Well, first of all, you're absolutely right. One of the things that's attractive to and great about working in television for writers is that you do have, as opposed to say a screenwriter in film, more control, especially for the showrunner. But even if you're just on the staff of someone else's show, the writers are the sort of connective tissue from episode to episode. Directors sort of come and go freelancing episodes. On a movie, the director's in control. And if they don't like the script, the first thing they do is replace the screenwriter. You can't replace a TV writing staff and a showrunner every time you don't like a draft of a script. So yeah, in general, that's what makes the experience pretty Pretty nice. My favorite ones, I mean, I've had a, a few really good ones. Uh, two I'd mention is my first job in TV, you mentioned Men of a Certain Age, which is a show more people should know. A lot of people don't know it. It, it was the show that Ray Romano did after Everybody Loves Raymond. It only lasted two seasons on TNT, and it was about him and a character played by Scott Bakula and a character played by Andre Brower as three men sort of turning 50 and dealing with that point in your life where you sort of are on the downhill slope, right? You know you're pretty much at least halfway through and you start to assess the choices you've made. And it was this lovely 
sort of dramedy, very spare, very subtle. And it was a great first job to have in TV because everyone on that staff, a lot of them were people Ray and Mike Royce, the other showrunner, had brought over from Everybody Loves Raymond. So it was all these people who were very experienced and had worked on this very successful sitcom. And so were willing to sort of take risks and just be very personal because basically they had all of the sort of mainstream success they needed to have with Everybody Loves Raymond. And they were just hilarious. So I remember just being this young, new TV writer in this room of these hilarious guys who I was learning so much from and just laughing all day. So that was a lovely job. And then, you know, you mentioned The Affair, which I worked on the last two seasons of, seasons four and five. And that was a really fun experience because the showrunner of that show, Sarah Treem, is an old friend of mine from college. So the opportunity to get to work with and for this like great old friend of mine was really sort of fun and moving in a certain way for, you know, the way life sort of brings people back together. And then the other thing I liked about that show was that, first of all, Sarah's the only sort of reflective of some imbalances in the industry, but Sarah's the only female showrunner I've ever worked for. And her writer's room was the only majority female writer's room I've ever been in. And just anthropologically, that was a really, really interesting and great experience. It's hard to articulate exactly the ways in which the feel and the vibe was different, but it, w it was different in ways that I found really educational. Wow. That was great too. And you came on a lot of people's radar in 2017 as book writer of The Band's Visit. How did yeah. you get involved with that? You know, as with American Tale and as with the way a lot of things work, especially in musicals, there's such complicated pieces of machinery, you know, so there's all these different people, you're putting it together. So as with American Tale, it was, you know, an email I got out of the blue someday summoning me to a meeting. In this case, the email was from Hal Prince's assistant, the famous director, producer, Hal Prince, who directed all of Sondheim's early shows and all this stuff. I got an email one day just saying, hey, Hell Prince wants to meet with you about this potential project. Are you interested? And it was funny because I just worked on a couple of musicals and they're very difficult. I wasn't looking for another musical to do, but I thought to myself, when Hal Prince summons you to a meeting, you go. So I went and he, at the time, was attached as a producer and to direct the show. He ended up not directing it because he ended up doing another show called Prince of Broadway, which was a sort of a review of numbers from his previous shows. But early on, he was attached. And so I met with him and Orrin Wolf, the commercial producer who had the rights to Bands Visit, the movie. And they handed me a DVD and said, do you know this film? Give it a watch, see what you think. And I guess it's a testament to how much I liked the movie that I said yes. Because as I said, I, I was like, no, 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 I'm not looking to, to do another musical, but I should go talk to Hal Prince about what he wants to do. And then I watched the DVD and I thought to myself, no, I have to do this. I see how. I think it's a great idea. And, you know, the band's visit, for people who don't know, is um, based on an Israeli film and it takes place in the desert in this tiny little town in Israel. And it's about these Israeli townspeople and these Egyptian musicians who get lost and stranded there. And my parents are Israeli and I've been to the region many times. And so I, I remember thinking to myself, oh, this is why they called me, you know, that because because I have this connection to later I was told that that had nothing to do with it. That they were just thinking of playwrights and people who they knew had some experience in musicals and my name had come up and so I was one of the people they brought in. But at the time I was like, oh, I see exactly why this makes sense. And I suppose that in the end it didn't matter because it all worked out. What was it like getting to work with songwriter David Yazbek on it? It was great. I mean, you know, he obviously had had, I think, three Broadway shows already before Band's Visit. He did Full Monty and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and Women on the Verge. And I'd never met him. So I just knew him by reputation. It's this successful, you know, Broadway musical songwriter. And what surprised and pleased me as soon as I started working with him was you could imagine someone with that level of consistent success 
would be very rigid or, you know, I, I know the right way and everyone else should just listen to me. And he he's not that way. I mean, he's super talented and his ideas are great, but he's also incredibly collaborative and flexible. From the moment we started working together, I felt just like a respect for my point of view. Not always, but I do find that a lot in this counterintuitive way with some of the more successful or accomplished people that I end up working with is that they're actually less pushy and less stubborn than people who haven't maybe quite broken through yet. So I've thought about why that might be. And I think it may have something to do with, first of all, that kind of flexibility and you know collaborative ability is what makes you more successful, first of all. But second of all, I think because they're secure in themselves, maybe as artists and as people, they're less threatened by whose idea won or who turned out to be right. They just want the show to be good. So just to circle back, I think this is true of Yazbek and why it was so nice to work with him is that he has the same self-questioning and neurosis and self-doubt as, as most artists, but in a way that it doesn't bleed into, you know, it doesn't guide the decision-making. It's just sort of like, oh no, like let's try this and best idea wins. And, and on the flip side, if he's very sure about something, he'll let you know, you know, oh, maybe we need a song here on page five about this tree. No, I don't think, you know, he just, he'll just say, no, no, I don't think there's a song there. You know, it was really great. And we're working together again on a new show, hopefully. And the 2018 Tony Awards was one of those years where Best Book of a Musical was presented on the telecast. And good thing yeah. it was because you got to give your acceptance speech on national TV. So True. what do you remember about that moment? On the one hand, I remember that moment very vividly. And on the other hand, like my mind kind of went blank. You know, it was a very interesting night because my award was pretty early in the evening. We ended up winning 10 Tonys that night, which is... It's crazy even to say. I sort of still can't believe it. And I think I was the second person from our show to win one. Jamshid Sharifi, our orchestrator, won before me. So it was still early. What I remember most from that moment, apart from just feeling like it was an out-of-body experience and like walking down that aisle and up onto that stage, I remember it felt like I was controlling a robot. Like I was slightly outside of my body and just like, remember how to walk. It was like a little bit like that. But then I also remember thinking, because I was not necessarily predicted to win as opposed to David Yazbek, everyone was pretty sure his score would win and people seemed to think, you know, there's a good chance he'd win Best Musical and that Katrina Lank might win Best Actress. But a lot of it was less clear after that. And for me in particular, because I was up against the great Tina Fey, who I adore, I think she's a genius, but for her lovely book for, for Mean Girls. So the other thing that I remember most vividly about that moment was that it felt like the fact that I won was a harbinger of how the rest of the night was going to go. Like, and I remember discussing this backstage as a couple other people from my show ended up back there when they won Tony's shortly after me that like, oh, like you can feel the landslide beginning. It was an incredible moment. And I remember one of those rare moments in life where I remember thinking while it was going on, thinking to myself to really take it all in and pay attention because it was very unlikely that anything quite like this was ever going to happen again. Just to be in the middle of one of those nights where you're associated with a show that's just cleaning up. It's very rare. So I was glad to get to experience it once. And the licensing rights to the band's visit are now owned by Music Theater International. What does it mean to you that the show will soon be performed by schools and local theaters all over the world? I think, first of all, that's always a wonderful moment with any show. I mean, you, you work really hard on whatever your initial production is on which you have input and try to do in some way the definitive 
initial version of the show. But one of the things that's so great about theater is that there's actually no such thing as a definitive version of any show. That's how theater works. So that moment when other artists start to put their own stamp on it, it's great. It's really exciting, especially to think about, you mentioned schools, especially to think about young people doing it. That's like extra sort of inspiring because the fact that they would want to, right? Because they're the next generation of theater that would keep, keeps the art form alive. And then with this show in particular, because it's about people with ostensible differences, like reaching across that divide to form connections. There's like an extra layer to the idea that all these different communities in all these different parts of the country or the world can do their own version because it, that itself is almost like an argument for the thesis of the show that there are certain things that are universally human i just saw a production in tokyo a month or two ago all japanese cast but they performed it in hebrew arabic and japanese they translated the english into japanese and i don't speak japanese i, I knew what every line meant because i know the show by heart because i've seen it so many times you could feel this audience in tokyo laughing in all the the same places, like responding emotionally in all the same places. And I was really sort of grateful and thrilled to see that. So yeah, I love that moment. And not every show you write, I mean, you can license them all. You can have Sam French publish your this or that play or, you know, whoever else. Not all of them end up going to as many places as all the others, right? Some end up being more popular than others. And because of the sort of really, really lucky journey we had with Bands Visit, it feels like a lot of different people are interested in doing it. It's pretty cool. For those who'd like to pursue a career in the theater, where do you think would be a good place to start? It depends what you want to do. I mean, there's a, first of all, there's all kinds of jobs in the theater. That's one thing to remember. Like not everybody has to be an actor. You can go into design, you can go into directing, you can go into writing. And I think increasingly, actually, my sense of younger people who are entering theater now is that there are more and more sort of multi-hyphenates, people who write stuff for themselves, who, or who sort of kind of do a little of everything. And that's pretty exciting. So in terms of where to begin, I mean, there's no one answer. And also when I quote unquote began, it was 20 years ago. So how I did it is no longer relevant because the world keeps changing and the industry keeps changing. So what I would say is find ways to do it. That's the one thing that never seems to change. If you want to be a playwright, write some plays and don't be afraid if the first few are bad. They will be unless you're like the Mozart of playwriting. Just write and learn and see what you wrote and be honest with yourself about what worked and what didn't and try to learn why and go see plays and read plays. And, you know, if you want to be an actor, find ways to act and so on. And then, you know, you, you can get training. You can go to a grad school or a BFA program for theater, but you don't have to. There's no one size fits all path. Sometimes the best training is just doing it for real out in the world. Moving to New York can help, but you don't have to do that either. There are thriving theater communities in all kinds of cities, Chicago, Philly, DC, but other places too, Dallas. And, and the industry is changing now too. I mean, the regional theater model was financially shaky, I think, to begin with. Unfortunately, I say this as sort of something of a democratic socialist, there isn't a ton of government funding for the arts in this country. There just isn't. It's never been as much a part of our cultural, like, we don't treat it as importantly as people do, say, in Europe. There's upsides and downsides to that. I mean, you can talk to European theater artists who are like, oh, well, the government, you know, gives money to the arts. So there's no incentive to please the audience. So a lot of the work is pretentious and bad. And I'm like, well, a lot of the work's pretentious and bad here too. So that just might be like a byproduct of people trying to make art. In any case, the fact that there isn't a ton of government support for the arts means that the arts end up depending on ticket sales and even more than that, donors. 
like just big donations from corporations or from like patrons, you know, like the Medici's in Italy when, you know, back in those days. And so this means that you have these big regional theaters. They have these budgets that they have to somehow meet even to break even and maintain their nonprofit status. And that was a really, really tricky balance to begin with. And then this pandemic hit that made it impossible for them to produce work. And then there wasn't a ton of help for the government. So that's a really long ramble to say that I think we are entering a period where the first thing I said, just do it yourself in whatever small way you can. Like the field might actually be more open than it has been. That it's not like do it yourself because for a while no one from these like big fancy theaters is going to pay attention to you. Do it yourself because those big fancy theaters are in the middle of recovering from something. I think the only thing that's going to help the art form survive is finding a way to platform the kinds of new exciting artists who will bring in new younger audiences. If you feel demoralized or discouraged about trying to break into theater, maybe it's important to remember that you are the only way theater will survive. Like new people trying to break in is how the art form is going to survive, which is a truism. It's always true, but especially right now coming out of COVID. I don't know how clear that answer was, but that's what I came up with. Before we go, do you have any other upcoming projects that you'd like to share with us? That's a good question. Well, I mentioned that David Yazbek and I are working on a new show along with another songwriter, Eric Delapena who's writing the songs with David. And it's based on a true story about an outlaw in the Old West who was very unsuccessful and then died. But then after he died, his body was preserved and he ended up being part of a series of museums and sideshows over the course of years and ultimately decades. And so it's sort of about his minimal adventures in life and then his crazy and much more interesting adventures after he died. So we're workshopping that and maybe we'll premiere it sometime in 2024. We're not totally sure yet. I also have a new play, a new non-musical straight play that's supposed to premiere at the Public Theater off-Broadway also in 2024. I don't have fixed dates for that either, but there's a couple things. There's a couple things coming up. And Amar, I thank you very much for devoting your time to this interview. It was great getting to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And for those who'd like to keep up with your career, where can people find you on the internet? I don't really have, like, I don't have a website or much of a social media presence. So that's a good question. Simply by Googling me, probably, which is also how I keep up with what's going on with me. Okay, yeah, that sounds perfect. So thanks again for joining me today, Edamar. It was great. Thank you. Have a good one. If you love this show, please leave us a review. Go to ratethispodcast.com slash carereviewspodcast and follow the simple instructions. Feel free to subscribe to wherever you get this podcast. If you'd like to find more content from me, please visit my website, which is www.carereviews.net. You can also find it on Twitter at carereviews and me at Jeffrey Care. Thanks for listening, and I will see you all later.